Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Ibanez Guitars and Basses. Ibanez strives to make high-quality, cutting-edge musical instruments that any musician can afford and enjoy. Visit Ibanez.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joel Wanasek, and Eyal Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am Eyal Levy. And with me is an old friend of mine who is actually celebrating his birthday today, Mr. Uh, Keith Marrow. Happy birthday. <laughs> it's not my birthday, bro. <laughs> it's not? No. That's what Skype told me. D- did it really? Well, that's wrong. All right. Well, then uh, fuck you, Skype. <laughs> it can be my <laughs> well, birthday, though. What'd you give me? <laughs> I was giving you my voice for oh. an hour and a half. I'll take and it. Lots, and lots of love. I'll send it your way, too. <laughs> nice. So, Nice to talk to you. I haven't talked to you in a while, and uh, I did check out the record you just put out, which I saw is killing it in the charts. Yeah, we're pretty surprised, man. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm really excited about it. It's a little bit unexpected, you know, for an independent release uh, that's you know not on a label, not really having any kind of. Uh, promotional campaign behind it to actually get that kind of reach so we're we're really excited about that well i think that there's a a tide shifting or or maybe what people always used to say that you eventually wouldn't need labels maybe that's finally starting to be true because this is the second time in a few months that a friend of mine has had this kind of success from a an independent release of this kind of music. So the other dude was Jason Richardson. His record with no label, mainly instrumental guitar stuff, killed it on iTunes. Yeah, I heard that did really well. Yeah, it did. And uh, and so now seeing that you put out yours in a similar fashion and it's killing it, maybe, maybe we are actually entering the era where a label is pointless. Well, I think to a certain extent... You know, they, they can offer certain things, maybe, uh, that you wouldn't be able to do on your own otherwise. But I've always done everything DIY, and I've always just really been pretty adamant about not needing a label, uh, for at least for what I do. And actually, labels have, have actually caused some issues for me in the past, you know, with, with other projects I've done. And it's just... You know, if you can figure out a way to make a name for yourself and uh, get the reach and, you know, become a presence on social media or anything like that, I mean, that's that's more than the label will do for you right there. So, yeah, I was about to say, you kind of you kind of do everything that a label should do yourself. You know how to make videos. You know how to record. Sure. Um, You already have your own reach out there. Like what? What else? You you can fund your own recordings, just fine. So what else really do you need from a label? Well, you know, I suppose maybe tour support or something along those lines. Um, you know, distribution in other countries if you want to do physical copies, um, which, in my experience, are a little bit irrelevant now, um, unless it's vinyl. But uh, you know it. There really isn't a huge need for it. If if you have music that people like and you're passionate about it and you can do all those things yourself, then you know, you're know you sort of doing all the things that they would be offering you anyway um, without having a middleman 
standing there with his hand out. Um, so it's, to me, I, I, I've considered quite a few different record deals that have, have come across my way. And, you know, when you read them, you're just kind of like, why would I do this? Why, why would I need that? Or, you know, what benefit would it actually be? And there, there's really not much. So, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to, to continue on being DIY, you know, not saying that I wouldn't ever have any label affiliation. It would just have to be, you know, a situation that was beneficial. So the right label affiliation. Yeah, I think you so. You know, and, I, and listeners of the podcast, if you want to hear an episode where we talk about a very beneficial label situation, listen to the podcast with Misha Mansoor, where we talk about how he, Periphery structured their various record deals. So we're not saying that it's that there's no way to get a good deal, but if you're in a situation like Keith's, it better be a good deal or else it's pointless. Now, let me just say, though, that to, for you to get to this point, it took years and years and years. Like, for someone who doesn't have an online presence or your recording skills or video-making skills, maybe uh, getting a label to help with that stuff is a good thing. Sure. You're not just able to succeed in a vacuum. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, at the same time, if you're online and you're trying to do this and you're you're trying to make music, you know, you probably know somebody who can do video or, you know, have some sort of resource to do those sorts of things. Um, and you also have all the resources right there to learn and and figure out how to do that yourself if you have the ambition to do it. You know, and labels can definitely do all that stuff for you. Um, but really, I think it just starts now by, you know, why would you want to be on a label? It's because you want to push your music out there. But it's almost the climate of things now is like if you're an artist that people are interested in, the labels are going to come looking for you. You don't have to go look for them. And then at that point, it's like, well, then why do it? What's the point? You know, and I'm not bashing labels and I'm not bashing anyone who's... Uh, you know, trying to uh, to get signed to a label or anything like that. It's just the the benefits aren't really what they used to be, I don't think. Uh, there's plenty of ways to get your music out there and even get it distributed on, you know, any platform you can possibly imagine without ever even contacting a record label. So it's, uh, you know, it's just kind of up to you on, on how far you want to go and, and how DIY you want to be. And, you know, I've always been extremely DIY. I mean, I change the oil on my own car and, you know, mow my own lawn and all that stuff. You know, it's just, that's just the way I've always been. So I also just really enjoy doing things myself. I like learning new things when it comes to doing production or video or anything of that nature. Um, it's a lot more rewarding, I think, when you can step back and look at it and say that you did it yourself. And I remember when I stayed at your house when we did the boot camp yeah, in Portland. That was a while that, back. That was that fun. Was two, 2014, it was fun. Um, where you, well, first of all, your house is gorgeous, but the your little um, guitar toolkit area, like your guitar setup zone. Oh, the little workbench? The workbench. I wouldn't call that a little workbench. Just on the on the topic of you doing things yourself, that's one of the most well-stocked, organized, and efficient workbenches I've seen outside of like a shop. Like when 
I have gone to like people's houses and stuff. They don't normally have stuff like that, like that set up. And yeah, I mean, I realize that this is what you do, so you're just being professional about it. But I think that the level that you take it to, like you say, you like doing things yourself. But I just want to illustrate for people that when you say you like doing things for yourself, like you really mean it, and you really go all the way with it like you're not half-assing stuff yeah yeah it's definitely not an exaggeration i mean no i've never i've never had anybody work on my guitars or do setups you know aside from you know maybe like a factory setup when i get a Schecter guitar or you know even uh having work done on a guitar that i can't do like have a evertune bridge put in or something like that you know there's certain things i i won't diy just because you know, they're either just going to be too much of a pain in the ass or I just literally don't have the skill to do it. But when it comes to most everything that, you know, in, in this this music world, I try to do it all myself if I can. It's it's more rewarding and it's fun to learn. Uh, most of the time it's fun to learn. And, uh, I'm you know, I'm usually more proud of the end result. So all the way down to setting up guitars and, and all that. So Do you mind if we take... If- we post a picture of your workbench. Oh, not at all, man. Okay, so in the show notes, guys, on our site for this episode, we're going to post a picture of his little work area just so that you can you get what I'm saying. And I I've from the time I've known you, the the work that you put into that echoes the kind of work that you've put into everything else that um I know you do. Like I know that you've been working on your mixing for a few years now and you every so often you'll hit me up with questions and they're super detailed questions um and your mixes have just gotten better and better and better i know that um your story about when you went to school for video and you were excelling at video and ended up getting a job before you were done with school um i just think that that's just what you do you just like to take things all the way and maybe we can talk about that a little more because I just want and I just want people to get through their heads that if you're going to do something, you can do anything you want, but you really need to to go all the way and uh, sure apply a world class standard to everything you're trying to do. Yeah. So, like um, for instance, with video, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the video stuff. Uh, it's kind of funny because I had never intended or set out to do video. It just kind of came on as a necessity. Same thing with production and, and actually really just this whole thing and, you know, being in, in the music industry and working in the music industry, it was uh, it was kind of a happy accident in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I was, I was just working regular mundane jobs. Um, I worked in the pool and spa industry for years. Uh, you know, my dad was a swimming pool contractor and... Uh, you know, music was just my hobby and it was my passion. And, uh, I, you know, I was sitting around one day just working on music for myself. Nobody would ever hear it. I would never put it online, um, or do anything with it really. And, uh, a friend of mine convinced me to start using this new thing called YouTube. (laughs) And (laughs) this was a long time ago. And, you know, I was always kind of like, nah, I don't, I don't really want to be that guy who, you know, sits on his bed and plays guitar and, and, you know, has people critique it or whatever. You know, it wasn't really my, my speed actually, because I'm a rather 
reclusive and introverted kind of guy anyway. And, uh, you know, he was just like, no, I think people would like these songs. You should share them. And so that's how it kind of started with just a really crappy old DV camcorder that was in my closet forever. You know, did a couple videos with that. And I was really kind of surprised how quick something happened with it. Um, I put them online and, you know, comments started coming in. You know, it was slow at first, of course, but comments started coming in and people were saying how much they liked it and they were asking how they could download it and find it. And I was just excited about that. I was like, wow, someone actually likes my music and and wants to listen to it on their iPod or whatever. And, uh, you know, so I just kept going. It was motivating, um, you know, to to go further with it and see how much better I could get at it. And, uh, you know, things started when the economy crashed in the States here, I got laid off of that job I was working. And I was like, well, you know, I'm just going to go back to school and do stuff that I love to do, you know, and, and hopefully something will happen. So I went back to college for multimedia and uh, went through the multimedia program at uh, Portland College. And, you know, right away I was really into what I was doing and I was, I was learning stuff about video and audio and uh, having a lot of fun with it. And from there, I just basically started doing projects on my own, um, you know, where uh, through those initial videos, I had um, a few companies that had reached out to me um, asking if I'd like to try their their products. And one of them was Seymour Duncan. And uh, they basically they sent me out a bunch of products just to, to try out in my guitars and and, you know, potentially do some videos with. And when I was in college, we had to obviously create a lot of video. So I was just kind of like, well, why don't I just figure out something cool to do with these pickups? And so I did a shootout video. You know, it was the first video I did for them. And uh, they liked it a lot. Uh, So, you know, Seymour Duncan was stoked. And the videos doubled as a college project. You know, which obviously the college was pretty excited to see that they were they were doing well on the internet and they got a lot of response and you know and they were impressed with the quality of them um, at the time. Which you know I I look back at it now and I'm like, wow, these are <laughs> really pretty terrible. <laughs> you know, but um, yeah. And then as a result of that, uh, Seymour Duncan actually created a, a job for me and hired me before I even uh, finished my my college career so that just kind of kicked off a lot of things for me and and got my foot in the door on you know in the industry from that side of it you know the the gear company side of it Um, so that must have been pretty cool uh you go to school for something after getting laid off uh something that you really really like and before you're even done you're already getting job offers for positions that didn't even exist just on the strength of your video making. Yeah. And it, you know, it changed my life. And ultimately, once you get a taste of that, you know, that you got your foot in the door and all of a sudden things are starting to look really good and you're doing things that you love for work, you, you get really hungry and, you know, you push harder to do better. And, and you just, you know, I, I want to be able to step back and look at something and, and say, yeah, I, I, I did the best I could with this. And, you know, if I, if I can't say that, then, you know, 
maybe I'll try harder. And, and I, I do that every time because I'm never completely happy with, with anything that I do. So, you know, it's always pushing me to, to do better or try harder. And that applies to pretty much everything that I do for my career and, you know, with audio and video and, and everything else, uh, you know, all the way down to guitar playing and everything. I'm always trying to improve and, and just, you know, see how much better I can get. Because if this is, if this is what I'm passionate about and this is what I'm going to do as a career, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw myself at it and do the best I can. Well, and I think that it bears mentioning, even though you've already said it, but I think it bears mentioning that to get good enough to the point where people would take the work seriously enough, you obviously had to put in the hours. And the only way to, in my opinion, to really put in the hours is at something like this is to be passionate about it. So I think that people listening, if if you want to do this, but you're not passionate about it, it might not be what you actually want to do with yourself. Yeah, it has to consume you completely. Yeah. I mean, you, you really have to let it consume you in order, I think, to, to keep that passion going. Because if you only do it halfway... You know, it's never going to solidify into into the big picture. I think. I mean, and but it sounds to me like it was never a willpower thing. No, definitely not. I mean, it's something I always wanted to do, but just didn't really put a lot of stock in it at the time. You know, I mean, I'm I'm getting older now. I'm almost forty years old. You know, so it was like I went a, a large portion of my working career not in the music industry, just because I know how tough this industry is. And I know that you have to have that passion and you have to have that drive and you got to be good at what you do or you're more than likely not going to make it anywhere because it's just, it's a tough landscape. And, you know, there's, there's certain qualities and certain types of people who succeed at this stuff. And it all comes down to that drive and that motivation and uh, just being savvy about it. And if you don't really have all those qualities combined, it's going to just be a real tough thing. Well, yeah, because you not only are going to have to deal with just getting yourself to sit your ass down and do the work, but if your passion and vision isn't intact, what are you going to do when you have your first professional disappointment? Yeah, I mean, it, and that happens. Yeah, that, that happens to all of us. You know, there's there's ventures out there and, and musicians take risks. I mean, that's what they do. I mean, look at look at bands out there, big bands, like, you know, all of a sudden they take a risk and they change their sound because that's what they wanted to do. And all the fans freak out about it and tell you it sucks and that you should have, you know, stuck to your original sound and all this stuff. It's like, well, maybe they should have from a business perspective because all these fans are buying it, but that's not what this stuff is about. You know, it's about, it's about that passion and about taking those risks because you, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, like a good example right now is the new Suicide Silence. They just sure. are putting out with clean vocals and people are hating it. Yeah. yeah the, the level of hate is blowing my mind. It's kind of but a bummer, they, really. I mean, it, it's. Yeah, it definitely bums me out because I think they're really nice guys. But on the flip side of that coin, a band that I never really listened to, but. Still, flip side of that coin was a band in this moment who started off as a metalcore band and were at the verge of disaster. They were at the verge of breaking up and they completely changed their sound, added electronic elements, like changed their appearance, like 100% change, changed the lineup, and then they got huge. 
Yeah. Like suddenly they're like selling 20,000 copies first week and like going on tour with like huge bands. Sure. Well, you know, part of that you got to ask yourself though, is is that a risk that they were willing to take or is that is that the direction that their label wanted to push them in? No, no, that was all them. I know for a fact that was all them. That nobody believed that it was a good idea and they did it anyways. Yeah, see that's cool. That's what I'm talking about, you know, taking those risks. Dude, they got dropped by their manager. They got dropped by so many people. Nobody believed in them, and they made the change, and they blew up. And so, yeah, like you're saying, it's those risks are, uh, you have to take them, well, but they, they are risks. Yeah, I mean, they took the risk, and, and they were also, you know, intuitive enough and savvy enough to make it work. So, you know, that that's great. The, those are the types of people who end up being successful. Yeah, I guess you never can quite know, though, right? No, you never know. <laughs> I mean, I just recently took a big risk myself. You know, we were just talking about, you know, the the job with Seymour Duncan. And, you know, I've worked with them for several years now. And uh, I actually left that position in December uh, to move on to doing some other things, you know, and, and working more for myself again, Um contracting out videos and things like that to other companies, but also just to focus on music. You know, I went down this path with gear companies and, and doing a lot of a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, especially these past couple years, um, with companies working on products, product development, marketing, you know, video content, other videos with other artists, things like that. I, I've done a lot of that sort of stuff. And it's sort of, you know, put put a lot of weight on me, but also took a lot away from my creativity and, you know, my ability to make music when I feel like making music. And that's why I got into this stuff to begin with. What, you know, it wasn't to be a demo guy or, you know, to, to do stuff for other companies, even though that's very important. It was more just, I, I like music and I like writing music. And I, I found that that was really kind of being taken away from me in a lot of ways. Just, uh, you know, not not on purpose or anything. It's just the nature of the the workload that I put on myself made it really difficult to actually focus and write music. And I just wanted to get that back. So I'm actually, I'm still going to probably be doing quite a bit of stuff with Seymour Duncan, but just as a contractor. And, you know, that that also gave me the ability to open up a little bit more and work with other companies as well. Is, is a free agent, so. And the and you got to work more on music and your new band's record is killing it. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely helped a lot. You know, most of that music was, was written quite a while ago and, and we had been sitting on that Alluvial album for uh, almost a year. It was, it was completed for a, probably about a whole year. And, you know, we were just trying to get the finishing touches on it. Everything was written. And I, you know, I just had to mix it, and we had been entertaining different things with the project. Uh, you know, bringing in a vocalist, for example, was one thing we kind of uh, touched on briefly. You know, ultimately we ended up releasing it as instrumental because we just sort of fell in love with the songs as they were. But uh, yeah, I mean, we sat on that album for a while, and it actually could have been out a lot sooner if uh, I wasn't so busy doing other things. So yeah. I mean, I, I, I got mean, bogged down. There you go. <laughs> yep. There you go. You got to take risks. Uh, there's no way around it. I mean, I took a, a major one a few years ago when I decided to stop producing and to 
pursue the online education thing, um, I took a very lucrative career in production, which I think a lot of people would have been perfectly fine for, had a very beautiful big house, was making a very good amount of money. And I literally put the brakes on it and stopped. I dropped all the records I was working on and was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. I am pursuing this new venture because I believe that this new venture is the future for me. Yeah, and well, you know, it, it's uh, it's a little cliche to say, but, you know, money isn't everything when it comes to this stuff, especially in this industry. I mean, it's a passion-driven industry. And, you know, those who are worried about the money all the time are the ones who aren't having a good time doing it. Uh, you know, you can't stress out about that because... You basically have to do what you love and hope the money will follow. And what I've found being in this industry, you, you can't rely on music, especially in our genre, you can't rely on music to be what's going to pay your bills. You know, surviving this industry for me has been more about uh, becoming somebody that other people or other companies will rely and depend on in order for them to make money. And then you charge them out the ass for it. <laughs> you know, that's like, <laughs> that's just kind of how it's been, you know. So, it, you know, companies, oh, well, you're the demo guy for this company or this company contracts you on a regular basis to do, you know, product demonstrations or, you know, help promote their products through using them or, you know, endorsements or whatever. That's that's kind of how the modern musician, at least in our genre, uh, needs to be in order to to survive. I mean, you look at at some of our colleagues. Uh, you know, you'd mentioned Misha a, a little while ago. You know, I mean, look what he's doing. He's got his hands in all kinds of different things. He's got his his drum software. He's got his pedal company. Uh, he's got a new PV amp. You know, there, there's all kinds of stuff like that, and that's kind of. Uh, you know, where, where the forward-thinking musicians are, are succeeding are, are the ones who are doing those sorts of things. And you have to do that. You could be an amazing musician, make amazing records, and people will buy them, and you'll, you'll make some residual income off that. But the things have changed a lot in that regard. Uh, you know, obviously, digital sales are, are what they are but they're so far down now compared to what they used to be because of streaming services that it's it's almost impossible to to make a, a good income off of it unless you're totally crushing it. So you have to find other ways if you want to survive it. Even then, man, like, and by totally crushing it, like, you got to be like, Asking Alexandria, yep. bring me the you got to be huge. bring me the horizon. Yeah, bring me the horizon. Something like that. Like to be able to make a like what I would call a really good living. Yeah, um, like well, you're not like getting just for rich an example. Either. I mean, you know, just to give some insight into that, uh, the last record I released before the Alluvial record was that Conquering Dystopia record with with Jeff Loomis, and uh, when we released that. It almost seemed like the streaming services hadn't really caught on as much yet. I, you know, they, they were there and they existed, but I don't think a whole lot of people used them. I think they were still using iTunes or, you know, Amazon, which obviously a lot of people still are. But the streaming services have grown so much. You know, we released that Alluvial record probably, I don't know, a month ago or something like that. And it's already up to, you know, over 30,000 uh, monthly listeners on it, and the, you know that's thirty thousand people. 
who That's you great. Know, maybe maybe only a tenth of those people actually bought the album, you know. So with with Spotify paying out like one sixth of a penny every stream, you know, there, <laughs> there's not much of a living <laughs> to be made there, you know. So you got to find other ways. Music do do music because you love it, not because you want to make money off of it. Yeah, and I feel like the whole making money off music thing was misguided about 10 years ago, but now it's especially misguided. I think that now it's almost like the... And this is kind of freeing in lots of ways, but it's almost like the music is the advertisement for what you actually do to make money. Sure. In a way. Absolutely. But but that's freeing because it allows you to be more pure with your actual music. Yeah, well, the music is is the vehicle to everything else that you're going to do in the industry. So you can do it without any, you know, preconceived notion that you're going to make money off of it. That should never, ever be a motivation for, for making music. You know, obviously, if you're doing it professionally, you have to consider it and you have to figure out ways to, to optimize that and, and monetize your work the best you can. But there's not much meat on the bone, <laughs> you know. It, it, there's just it, there's just not, um, you know. Especially in the the metal world, it's very saturated. There's there's a lot of bands out there, so you know record sales are just they're tough, and you can't really rely on them. It's definitely you know a passion thing. It's not really you know bands are a business, but I think the music is the vehicle to get you other business. All right, so. Let's uh let's change topics and uh talk a little bit about YouTube if you don't mind. Yeah, not at all. Because I know that when you started it, when you started doing YouTube videos, that was, you know, virgin territory. Um there weren't a bunch of guys on there doing product demos or putting their music out on there. It was a fairly new thing. And now there's a lot of people doing it, yet you have managed to still thrive. What do you think are some of the key factors to being successful on there? And especially for nowadays, where it's a much more saturated field. Sure. Well, the surprising thing about that, you know, you mentioned that it's it's thriving, but it kind of isn't anymore. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've really kind of fell into the background a lot these past couple of years by working on stuff behind the scenes with companies and doing stuff in, in the music industry that was sort of, you know, out of the public eye, I guess you could say. So I, I really hadn't been able to do very many videos uh, to keep that channel sort of fed and, and keep people interested in it. So it's actually kind of plateaued out and it's been sitting at the same subscriber base for quite a long time. And it's just because I've, I've sort of uh, had to neglect it, you know, not by choice, but just because of the nature of everything else I have going on. But when I, when I initially started out on YouTube, it was kind of in its infancy, at least on, in that, uh, in that realm, you know, the, the guitar player, uh, doing gear demo kind of stuff realm. You know, I, I remember Ola, and e Ola England and I kind of started out at similar times doing similar things, and, and we actually became friends through doing that. So a lot of it just came down to when we did it. I, I feel like if I was to start over and try to try to do all this today, it wouldn't work. I, I probably wouldn't have, you know, make it because I think 
in some ways, maybe some of that stuff inspired other people to, uh, you know, to try to figure out how to do that for themselves. And a lot of people have been really successful at it and they're, they're excellent at it. So it's definitely a, a hard path to go down, um, especially if you're starting from nothing now. But it can definitely be done. It's just the bar is really high, <laughs> you know, so you have to do really, really excellent work. Yeah, I mean, I think that you guys are responsible for how high that bar is. Well, I don't know about that. I think I think we all push each other. Um, you know, every, everyone's kind of always improving quality in, in various areas and and we all learn and grow. I mean, it's just like anything else. The more you do it, the better you get at it. So you're kind of inadvertently raising the bar, you know, but really, for me, it's just raising my own personal bar. I want to do better every time. <clears throat> and if that, you know, if that translates to making other people want to try harder or inspire other people to do it, then then that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. So if you were to, I guess if you were to decide that YouTube was a priority, what would you do differently then? Now? Um, yeah, if you were like, all right, I want YouTube to be my priority. What's Keith Marrow going to do? Well, that's a tough one. Um, because unless you're really crushing it on there, it, it's hard to justify the amount of time and effort it takes to make some of those videos. Um, just to give some people an idea of, of, you know, the amount of work some of that stuff actually is. Um, yeah, it, I'm curious. Yeah, you know, I get... I get messages daily, you know, that are like, can you do a video with this? Or can you do a video for this amp? Or, you know, it'd be really cool if you could compare these two products or something. And it's like, I don't know if they really realize what they're asking. Because <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it, you know, these these are a ton of work to do, at least the videos that I do. They can definitely be done easier. And you can probably get just as an effective of a, a result out of it uh, by not doing as much work. But, you know, writing the music, doing all of the audio recording and mixing, filming all the sh all the video, setting up all your shots, getting your lighting right. You know, a simple four or five minute video can literally take a week to make. So it's, it's really a lot of work and it takes a lot of time and dedication to do. And so it's, it's almost like that's why my video output isn't very high is because I want to make videos that are, are good to look at they sound awesome. They look cool. And, you know, the music is, is the most important part to me, even if it's a stupid gear demo or something about a, a product that I don't really have much invested in, you know, personally. When you spell it out like that, it really illuminates how many different skill sets you need to be proficient at, with in order to pull this off at a good level of quality. Yeah, you got to wear a lot of hats. You know, there, there is a lot to it. Especially when it comes to doing, like, let's say a company contacts me and wants me to do a, a video for a pedal or or something. I mean, they're expecting that the quality is gonna gonna be really high and it's gonna favorably reflect their product, unless the product is total garbage. <laughs> you know, it, it has to sound good, it has to look good, it has to be pretty polished. You know, otherwise those companies wouldn't be approaching me to do it. So it, I, I really have to do that much work and you have to wear all those hats in order for them to be effective. I, it's just, I don't know, it's just funny to me, man, where people just think that you just put things together and it just wills itself into being. And it's not that, it's years of work with each one of these disciplines. 
Yeah, uh, you equals know. this type of output. Sure, and you know, I, I'm definitely not saying that I make the best sounding and looking videos out there because because there's plenty of dudes out there who do amazing work, but I really do put a lot of effort into it, and it's it's a difficult thing to do. Um, so you know, in the end, it's only going to be as good as you you make it. Okay, so I'm curious about your production skills because you're pretty damn good at it, especially your mixing has come a long way. Uh, do you have you ever been produced by a producer, like when tracking guitars, or have you always just done it yourself? Um, I've always done it myself. Uh, you know, and thank you for for saying that. Um, I, I have been trying pretty hard to get better at it, and it's it's a long road. <laughs> but no, I've never uh, I've never been produced by anybody else. Um, I've always done my own tracking and recording, and I haven't always done my own mixes and stuff like that. But recently, I definitely have. Well, I and I know that it seems like your skills have leveled up considerably in just the past couple of years because back in Conquering Dystopia, you didn't mix that, but this uh, this new stuff, the mixes sound great. Oh, well, thank you, man. What have you been doing to um, to up your game? Just been working at it a lot, but what what specifically have you been focusing on? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. In, in terms of uh, the alluvial stuff, for example, and, you know, the album you mentioned, that originally came about, and, and I had been working on that mix for a really long time. Um, I had initially wrote one song uh, that actually ended up being the first Alluvial song and sort of started tailoring the foundation of the mix based on that one song. And as the rest of them came along, I had kind of created this template based on that original song. And it just sort of morphed into the sound of the record uh, organically over, you know, a couple years. So it was it was something that definitely it didn't happen overnight. I had worked on that mix for for a long time and tried a lot of different things, and I I kind of used it to get all my experimentation out on <laughs> trial and error, making it sound really terrible, and then regretting it the next day, and then trying to fix it, and you know <laughs> it was it was a, a long process and. Uh, ultimately, it, it it was the first time, though, uh, for me anyway, that I was able to get a mix that I heard in my head, if that makes any sense. You know, you when I visualize yes, this music, yeah, when I visualize this music and, and even during pre-pro, you kind of have this this sound that you want in your head. And, and I know everybody has it. That's, that's the reason why they mix the way they do. They're trying to get it to sound the way they hear it in their head. And... The alluvial mix was the first time that I, I was able to do that, and so I, I'm really happy with it, and I was really proud of it. You know, it's definitely not for everybody, and there's a lot of issues with it, I'm sure, and there's a lot of things that could be critiqued about it, but it was what I wanted, and, uh, you know, Wes loved the mix as well, so it, it ended up being exactly what we had hoped for, but it was a, a process of a lot of trial and error that lasted a solid two years. Well, one thing I've noticed about your mixes, always noticed this, even before they were really starting to sound like finished products, and I also noticed this from doing the boot camp with you and just knowing you, your guitar tones are just 
ridiculous. They're just, you have a way of capturing emotion in your guitar tone. Like, it's really, really weird. Like, you know how to make a guitar tone sound like it has teeth. Oh, wow. Or make it sound evil or make it sound like it has aggression in there. And I remember when we made that one Kemper profile together, which at the time was like the best Kemper profile I had ever heard. I know you know the one I'm talking yeah. about, the 5151 that we made at that boot camp, yep. right when Kemper had released the new firmware where their low end was uh, finally fixed. That was the 5150 that I brought to the studio, wasn't it? That was of, of the amp that I had, or was that one they had there? Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Well, that amp's magical, but you know that same methodology kind of applies to everything, all the tones that I try to create. I, I kind of go for a specific thing with each of them. And, uh, you know, I really try to tailor the tones to, to my sound and my playing so that they accentuate some of the things that I'm trying to do. You know, you, you mentioned some of the, the emotion and the aggression in, in the sound and all that stuff. You know, obviously most of the tone is going to come from the player and the way that they're playing certain things. But I try to tailor the tone to uh, to accentuate that the best I can. And that's been a long process, too. You know, I, I look back on some of my older stuff, and I'm man, like, dude, that guitar tone is fucking shot. You know, like, it's like the worst thing. But, you know, over time, you, you find things. When we made that tone, there were obviously the normal technical things happening. Like, we tried out every speaker on the cab, with multiple mics, we tested it out against multiple preamps, right? And every combination, we did all those things. But then once we decided on what was the best speaker, microphone, preamp combination, then you started tweaking it. And uh, you tweaked it to get more aggression and anger out of the tone. That's I remember you saying that. And... I remember we passed the guitar around, but I stopped playing guitar because uh, my picking wasn't pissed off sounding enough. So we gave it to your buddy Chris Finster um, because it was hard for you to dial tone while picking at the same time. Mm -hmm. And Chris plays like a like a beast, and uh, so uh, that was also crucial too that we put the the guitar in the right dude's hand. So my picking wasn't strong enough yeah, to get that tone. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, with that that particular tone, and and really, when it came to making Kemper profiles for that session, and pretty much any Kemper profile that I do, I have a few tricks that I like to do uh, that have really sort of helped develop my sound, and have have actually kind of uncovered what I look for in in a tone just by stumbling across a few little tricks that, that I found with the Kemper. When I dial in a tone with, with the amp that I want to profile, I get it to sound as good as I can, as, as clear and aggressive as I can. And there's, you know, there's one little thing that I figured out that if you turn the gain all the way down to where it's just barely breaking up on the amp, and you know, you just start to get that saturation. It, it almost sounds like there's just a layer of saturation on a clean guitar. Um, you know, like on the actual amp itself. Yeah, on the amp itself, you, you you roll the gain almost all the way back to where it's just barely breaking up. But you get all that resonance that you hear in the low in the in the low mids. 
Um, and then, you know, it's pretty clean in the mid-range section, and then you have that nice sparkle on the top. Just just enough gain to where it just starts breaking up. And that's where you profile it. And then you roll that gain back in in the Kemper. And for whatever reason, the way that it approximates that gain curve, it's probably not even correct. It, it ends up not really sounding like the way the amp responds when you turn the gain up on the amp. But what it does is it just increases that character that you had where you have that, that 3D kind of resonance in the low end and the, the sparkle in the top while keeping the clarity in the mids. That's the trick that I have for getting those Kemper tones like that is you profile it when it's just barely breaking up. And I found a, a few other tricks that have helped that even more. You know, for getting that really like 3D high gain thing, you know, where it's like a really teethy kind of tone, but you can hear it all the way to the pick, you know, it's uh, for me, it's a combination of that trick where you roll the gain way back. And then it's also all about the cabinet, obviously. And I've gone through a bunch of different cabinets, tried a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, speakers and cabinets and mics and Ultimately, for my guitar sound, the core of, of my rhythm sounds, I have this old Randall ISO cabinet with just a, a single 12-inch. That's right. Yeah, remember that thing? Yeah, you, you guys sounded great. Yeah, and, and that thing, there's something magical about it, and we, we modded it pretty heavily. You know, the, those things by themselves, as they just come off the shelf, they sound absolutely terrible. They're, they're boxy, they're nasally, they're just gross. But what we did was ripped out all of the insulation and we, we fill it with like a real dense insulation behind the speaker, put in a, a cream bag Celestian and then uh, lined the entire inside of the speaker area, including the lid with, uh, you know, with RLX and then, uh, you know, put a better uh, mic mount in it. So it's more of an adjustable gooseneck type thing. And that same thing I was talking about where you get the amp to kind of break up and resonate uh, to where you can really hear the separation between each of the frequencies, you know, like low, mid, and high. You do that same sort of thing with the, that cabinet, and you just get it to sort of resonate. And you can hear it doing it with the lid closed. And, you know, you find the sweet spot with the, the actual volume that you're pushing inside of that cabinet. Because obviously if you push it too hard, it's just going to sound like a mess. And if you're not pushing it enough, it's just not going to have very much aggression. So you can kind of like tell when you have an ISO cab, it starts to resonate just right. You know, it's, it's kind of weird. Like it'll vibrate a certain way and you can just hear that, that low kind of woofing in there. And that's when you know that's like the sweet spot to profile it at. So, you know, a lot of people, when they heard, especially on the Alluvial record, that like, they were Kemper guitars. They're like, why wouldn't you just use the, the actual amp? You know, that that's stupid. Like, why did you use a digital modeler instead of using, you know, the source amp if you had it right there? And it's like, well, I can make the source amp in that cabinet sound great, for sure, not a problem. But there's these little tricks you can do with the Kemper to, to really kind of make it better, you know, by profiling it a specific way and then letting the Kemper kind of pick up the slack and, and approximate the gain curve. And and it, it does something to, to that core sound, you know. That's not the way that a lot of people use the Kemper. You know, a lot of people want it to sound exactly like the source. And, you know, I, I have a lot of tones like that as well. But for me, I've figured out 
a couple little things that you can do to actually make it sound better than the source amp. And so that that's uh, that's how I do it. It's interesting that you say that because the majority of the Kemper tones that I have had success with have been tones where they do sound better than the source. And then the ones that I find myself not using quite as much are the ones that are that were more meant to be identical to the source because I feel like if you want to get it identical to the source, it's almost like why not use the why not use the source unless you're in a situation where like you know the source has been torn down. Exactly. Yeah, it's also a convenience thing too. I mean, that alluvial record was you know it came to be over the span of two years. You know, I'm not exactly going to have the same amp rig set up with the same mic and every you know for two years sitting in the middle of my my floor. You know, but. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I've just I've used the Kemper a lot, and I've really come to learn it really well, and and figured out how to how to profile things, you know, to benefit my sound. Uh, you know, I the first fifteen minutes I ever spent with the Kemper, I was like, oh my god, this is the best thing I've I've ever done in my life. I love <laughs> this thing, and it, it really did kind of help me find find my sound. Um, and some of those tricks that I was talking about, I, I found those by accident. And that's kind of when it opened my eyes where I was like, you can use this thing to, to really kind of try different things and experiment and, and come up with these tones that are just really gnarly. You know, and it does end up sounding different than the amp, but that's okay. If it sounds awesome, then who the fuck cares? <laughs> what do you think of the refining process? How do you approach that? I don't even do that. Dude, that's amazing because so many people think that that's like where the Kemper tone comes together. Yeah, and, and it, it, do, it does. It depends, though. Um, if you're trying to get it to sound exactly like the amp, then yeah, I'll refine the hell out of it. You know, hit refine and sit there and play for 10 minutes and hit every note on the fretboard, and it'll more than likely end up sounding exactly like the amp. But for the way that I, I capture my tones and the way that I do my profiles, I, I almost don't need it. It actually almost takes away some of those qualities I was talking about if I sit there and do the refinement because, uh, you know, that weird alien signal that the Kemper sends through the amp, if you have the amp set to where it's just barely breaking up and you're getting that 3D thing, if you go to refine that uh, afterwards by by playing guitar with that same tone, it just makes it sound really stupid, you know? <laughs> it's like the alien signal goes through and it, it, all of a sudden it's it's like, okay, now you can go and turn up the gain on the Kemper and it approximates it in such a way that it, it sort of saturates a clean sound and just makes it super clear. But if you hit refine and you start playing guitar, it's really just kind of ruining that, you know, by, by making it sound really weak. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it depends. Sometimes I'll use the refine feature and sometimes if, if I'm trying to get like my rhythm sound, I won't use the refine feature because it, it actually makes it sound worse. Wow, that's actually pretty fascinating. When you tour, <laughs> it's really weird, I know. No, that's but you do have your own sound and it's and it's monstrous. So it's just uh I know you all know. <laughs> it's it's true though, dude. <laughs> um not just kissing your ass. It just it sounds great. I just think it's interesting that you kind of figured out uh non-intended use for the camper. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I swear by that thing. People are always asking me why I use the camper so much or, you know, do I like it more than the Axe FX or like it more than all these other modelers and stuff? And it's like, well, for that reason, I do. Um, 
because it, it really helped me find the sound that I wanted and it does it in a really cool way. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's the trick to a lot of my, my guitar tones is, is doing that. And I think it's important to say that, or to just like highlight that you're not saying that it's the best amp modeler or amp sim ever made. It's the one that works for you, the one that you found your voice through. Um, and I'm saying this because I don't want people listening to this to yeah. to suddenly think that they have to own a Kemper in order to find their own sound. No, definitely what not. Keith is saying is, yeah, that's how you found your sound. But for instance, Joey Sturge is my partner. He found his guitar sound through Amp Farm. I mean, through Pod Farm, uh, the Line 6 sim, which a lot of people hate and a lot of people love, but he found a way to make it sound monstrous. And that's what works for him. So I, yep. I just want to reiterate that just because it works for Keith doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Yeah, well, and they're, they're all just tools, you know, and, and really there's a lot of this weird kind of competition, especially in the modeler world where, you know, if, if you bought an Axe Effects, then you automatically have to hate the Kemper or you have to hate the, <laughs> the Helix or whatever. Like, it's just, you know, you, you just spent over two grand on this unit, so everything else is a piece of shit and you have the best unit on earth. And I, I've never really looked at it like that. You know, they're, they're tools to use to, to get a desired result. Um, you know, I have an Axe Effects. I, I like the thing. I, I use it for effects and specific things like, like a tool. And, you know, I use the camper for the core of my rhythm sound, which is based on an amp that I use. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's just tools to, to get the desired result. There's no, you know, one's not necessarily better than the other. They all do different things. Absolutely. I, people get very Mac versus PC about it. Oh, big time. It's, it's full-blown Android fucking versus iOS all the way. Yeah. Dude, the, the silliest one of those is when people get that way about their DAWs. I don't get it. Yeah. And the funny thing about DAWs is, you know, those those all do the same damn yeah, thing, exactly. just in a like, slightly different way. Who cares? <laughs> Seriously. Especially nowadays. Nowadays. Like, okay, so I understand yeah. maybe <laughs> 10 years ago when people were like, Pro Tools is the industry standard. If you want to work in the world, you better know Pro Tools. Okay, maybe 10 years ago. But now... And for the past five years, not the case. Not the case at all. Yeah, not really. Yeah, not not really. I mean, there's obviously, you know, really big commercial studios are still, you know, all over Avid's nuts. But it's uh, it it's really just comes down to what works for your workflow and what you're comfortable using. Because they, they all kind of do the same thing. I mean, I, I use uh, Persona Studio One Pro, and I've, I've used it since the beta release of it. And, you know, I've dabbled with Pro Tools and Logic and, and messed around in pretty much every DAW just, just to do it. But for what I do, um, considering I don't really do mixes for other people, you know, it's mainly for me, I, I found that I work best in, in Studio One. We have a few listeners who use Studio One, and all you Studio One users seem to really love it. You know, I, I do, man. I, I swear by it, and... If there was ever a time I was going to get Mac or PC on anything, I'd be like, dude, Studio One is fucking awesome because it, <laughs> it is. It's got it's got a lot of features that really help me, you know, in my workflow to get ideas out. It's very much a creator's DAW, if that makes any sense. You know, Pro Tools are great editing DAW. You know, Logic is is a good mixing DAW, but Studio One is a really good creative DAW. 
The workflow in it is super smooth and really intuitive. It has this scratch pad feature on it where you can basically add simultaneous timelines to, to your session and mess around with different tempos and mixes and all this other stuff without affecting anything on your main timeline. I think other DAWs have a similar feature, but the way that Studio One does it is really pretty cool. And Isn't Melodyne built into it? It is, yeah. Which I, I don't really use. It's a little cumbersome, I think. But it, Well, Melodyne is cumbersome to begin with. So, I, in my opinion, I've always used Autotune, but like a lot yeah. of people love Melodyne. And I just think that it's interesting that it's built in. Yeah. Well, I did, I did use it on the Alluvial record uh, for one thing, and that was to convert my bass DI to MIDI and then run that through uh, JST Subdestroyer uh, for the, the very low end of the mix. <laughs> Boom, right there. That's, that's what that plug is for, actually, so you <laughs> used it right. Oh, man, it worked great, too. It, it, it really fills out the, the sub-frequencies without really affecting, uh, affecting the sound of your bass guitar, you know? It just, it just adds this layer of just well, massiveness I to it. I think that a lot of people struggle with the bass programming part of it and it's like just use melodyne boom yep that's all i did i basically you know you you can do it with one button it takes your di and analyzes it it's it's never perfect i mean you always have to go in and fix shit but it's it gets it really close and then you just drop sub destroyer on it and there you go you're done well well back when we did the boot camp i didn't know how to do that yet in melodyne and uh i remember i remember we had talked about doing that yeah didn't we program it from note by note yeah and then i remember later saying you know you could do that with melodyne and then we were like yeah and then i think <laughs> that's when i started doing that was after that boot camp because i'm like why don't I just do that? <laughs> Programming note for note in the uh, piano roll for music like yours is a cumbersome task. It takes a while. Dude, programming anything note for note for any kind of music is like the worst thing on earth. <laughs> well, you program drums. Yeah, and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good answer. No, I mean, it's not bad. It, it's, you know, there's, there's some art to it, and obviously it's... Uh, it's only going to be as good as you make it. So you have to have patience and dedication to, to doing it in order for them to sound, you know, convincing and, and powerful and believable. But uh, it's definitely not the funnest part of the process. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So you've done something that reminds me of what I used to do when I was playing, which is, which I, it was a strategy that, uh, that I, employed like when i was finding the lineup for doth or when doing avalanche of worms was to try to surround myself with the very best that i could have access to because i always figured that well i think you're a sick guitar player better than me but the point is that i never thought i was very good at guitar so i figured that i should get with guys that i think are fucking smoking and uh, that that would elevate the project. And you've gotten with guys that are just like best in the world status, like Jeff Loomis or Wes, you know, like on Conquering Dystopia, Alex Rudinger. Like, was that always a goal to find like the very, very best of the best for your projects? Yes and no. Uh, it's kind of a similar thing, you know, like I, I know I know my, my strengths and weaknesses when it comes to music and guitar. But when it came to uh, 
Conquering Dystopia and, and Alluvial and, and other projects. It was more just because those people have become my friends over the years and and working with them is is just more of like an enjoyable experience. You know, that's not to say that, yeah, they definitely elevated those projects to somewhere that I couldn't have taken it on my own, but that wasn't really the, the purpose of that. Uh, like doing the album with Jeff, we did that because we had been talking about it for a long time and it was just something that we we wanted to do for ourselves. And the same thing with Alluvial with Wes. Um, actually, that, that even predates Conquering Dystopia. Um, Wes is one of the first dudes I, I even met in, in this whole game. Um, he helped me get my first endorsement way back in the day. Uh, you know, when I very first started getting on YouTube, we became friends really quickly through, uh, through the internet, through forums. And we had talked about doing an album since then, uh, you know, all the way back in, I don't know, it was like 2007 or something. But, uh, you know, that, that was more like something that we knew we wanted to do because we had, we had a lot of the same interests. Um, you know, we even had a similar sound and style when it came to playing riffs and, and writing songs and stuff. But that, that ended up not ever really happening, you know, early on because Wes obviously has been really busy touring around with a lot of other bands and, and working on a lot of different things himself. And, but we always talked about it. We always wanted to come back to it at some point, and uh, we ultimately ended up doing that. Uh, but the conquering thing, that came about because when Jeff and I first started hanging out and playing music together, it was just for fun, and we were sort of doing small gear demos for companies uh, that, you know, they'd send us an amp and say, can you guys do a video with this? And we would just write music that was very not serious. It was just like, oh, let's just make some really dumb, ignorant metal. And, you know, people liked it, and they were like, you guys should do a record. And, and we heard that so much that we were finally just like, well, maybe we should. Maybe we should make a record, but maybe we should take it seriously. <laughs> and so we, we did, and it was an amazing experience. And, yeah, I mean, working with guys like that is, is humbling, and, you know, it's, it's difficult. And it's rewarding all at the same time. Do you feel like it makes you a better musician? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it pushes you to try harder because, you know, obviously, uh, you know, both Jeff and, and Wes are at the top of the pile when it comes to metal guitar players um, in, every, in every aspect. So, you know, at times it could be a little bit demoralizing even, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh man, yeah, I, I know, you know, like I can, I, Jeff would come over and we'd be working on stuff. And before we're even set up to doing any, you know, do any serious recording, he's sitting on the couch playing shit that like you would try your entire life to play and never do. And, and he's just busting it out, sitting there, not even paying attention, like watching TV. And you're just like, dude, can you care about what you're playing for like five seconds? Cause that's like devastatingly hard to do and I'll never be able to do it. So fuck off, go home, you know, like it's, it's pretty, pretty gnarly, man. What, what those guys are capable of. That's what of. it's like being in a band with someone like Amel. It's just like, it's oh, just yeah, like, definitely. Dude, he's a, he's a fucking alien. Yeah. It's like, and you say something like, what are you doing? And they just start laughing. I don't know. It's just yeah. fucking playing yeah like nothing i was just i was just noodling around and it's just like what 
Yeah. Now, Jeff, Jeff especially, man. I mean, when we were tracking that record, he would, uh, you know, we, we would start in the morning really early. We'd get some coffee. He'd warm up for about a half hour, and we'd start going at it. And he'd really start getting on fire about an hour in. And then by that second hour, he just sounds even better. And we tracked pretty much all the leads on the Conquering record in one day. <laughs> and Jesus. Yeah. And so we started, we started in the morning, and we went for like 13 or 14 hours straight. And by that 14th hour, you'd think, you know, most any guitar player would be burnt out and be ready to just throw the guitar. They just don't sound as good as they did, you know, two hours, three hours in. He sounded just as good as he did 14 hours in as he did, you know, two or three hours in. And I had to stop the session because I was tired of staring at the screen. I was like, man, my eyes are going to fall out of my head if I look at this DAW any longer. And he just like, all right, let's go watch a movie. Hangs the guitar up and walks away like, like no big deal. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely humbling to, to work with guys like that because they're on this level that's just like pretty mind-blowing and it, it's inspiring. I have a funny story about Jeff Loomis and Jason Richardson. Uh, Jeff did a solo for Jason's album and it's on the last song on the album. It's a long solo too. Like it goes on for a while. A long song, long solo. And it's an epic, epic solo. And Jason has been selling tabs of his stuff for years. And I guess he also put together a tab book for his album. And he asked Jeff to send him the tab. And Jeff was like, I don't know what I played. You know, <laughs> that I forgot. I, for, I forgot <laughs> what I did. So Jason had to learn yeah. that Jeff solo note for note in order to be able to transcribe it, which... Is pretty harrowing. Yeah, that's that's a that's a feat of strength yeah, right there. And focus, like <laughs> God, like so many notes. Yeah, but he but he figured yeah. it out. He said that it took like a solid week though. Yeah, and it's probably something that Jeff just busted out in an evening. You know, that's that's what's really funny. Is <laughs> you know, on some of my, my earlier solo material, he did uh he did some guest solos and, and that's how that went. He would He'd do it in an evening. He'd sit down and he'd start he'd start ripping on the stuff, and then he would do two, three takes and send them all, and be like, you know, hopefully one of these works for you. And of course, all three of them are like, what the hell? Like that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And yeah, it's just stuff that comes to him naturally, and and you can just do it. It's it's pretty amazing. So on the topic of recording guitars, how are you capturing your DIs? Uh, the way that I record. My guitars is, you know, obviously I record a DI and a wet signal at the same time, uh, but I just run into a, a Countryman Type 85 and run one line out to straight to the interface, and then uh, the other line goes to the Kemper, and I record both of those simultaneously. So I always have uh, a DI for everything I do. Nice. So that's all there is to it. That's cool. it. Uh, that I easy. mean, I knew, I know that it's that easy, but I just want to. I just wanted you to say it because um, I think that lots of people overcomplicate it with the with how to get a good DI tone. Yeah, I think I think getting a good DI tone really comes down to having a good DI box and then having a, you know a nice a nice interface to plug into. For me, that's worked great. Uh, there, there's probably more detailed and better ways to do it, but that's the result that I've I've you know that's the best result that I've found. 
is just using a good DI box. And good guitar and good pickups, too. Oh, yeah, that's that's a huge part of it, you know, fresh strings. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, normally when guys will be like, I don't know what's wrong with my DIs. They just don't sound that good. And then you find out they're using, like, a $300 guitar with, like, stock pickups and go going yep. into an M box. It's like, well, what do you expect? Yeah, well, I can tell you that. Over the years of, of working with pickup companies and, and working with Seymour Duncan and having tried so many different guitar pickups and actually helped develop a bunch of different guitar pickups, it, it's it's actually a really significant part of all of that. And it, it's a, a big part of getting a good DI. It's a big part of getting a good guitar tone. I mean, any guitar player knows that the pickups, you know, they make a difference. Um but finding the right pickup for the right guitar and, and the pickup that fits your sound, that's, that's a big part of it. And, uh, you know, that, that's actually one of, one of the best things you could probably do for getting a good DI is make sure that you have, you know, a really sick set of pickups in your guitar. So how would you recommend someone go about trying to find the right pickups for, for them? Like, do you just say, just buy a bunch and get them installed or like are there any guidelines that you would follow well you could go to youtube.com slash keith no i'm just kidding (laughs) um basically uh it kind of comes down to personal taste i mean if you really like a sharp pick attack with like a high resonant peak you know you'll probably want like a ceramic based magnet pickup if you like it a little bit more warm, a little more organic, you might want, you know, an Alnico based pickup. You might want a super hot pickup if you play, you know, extreme death metal, or maybe you want one that's not and you you want more clarity and articulation out of it. So you get one that isn't quite as hot. You know, if you have a really dark sounding guitar and you need to brighten it up, maybe ceramic is the way to go uh, and vice versa. If, it, if it's, you know, a, a super bright guitar and you need to tame it a little bit, then you might get something a little warmer, but it, it really just comes down to personal taste. And, and for me, that process has come through a lot of experimentation and most people don't have the luxury of, of doing that. I mean, working for Seymour Duncan, you could pretty much just get any pickup at any time and try it out. That isn't an option for everybody, obviously. So uh, you know, ask around, ask, ask friends in the guitar community and look on forums and see what other people uh, are, are digging and check out different videos for different sound clips, which, you know, sometimes that's an effective way to do it. But, uh, you know, other times maybe it's a little misleading. It's hard to say. But, yeah, I mean, ask around, see, see what people are digging for the kind of tones you like. I, I think that the, at the very least knowing what the different types of material will do for your tone is a good place to start. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, do a little research and and figure out what makes pickups sound the way they do, and that'll kind of help you, help steer you the direction that, that you want to go in. Now, do you have a set that you think are, like, the perfect Keith Marrow pickups, or is it just not like that? They're just tools. You know, surprisingly, I don't, man. Out of all the pickups that, that I've, I've tried and, and even ones that I've helped make, I, I've never found the one that, that I was just like, this is the end all, you know? I'm always kind of playing around and trying out different ones. I've gotten really close, for sure. Um, 
you know, like the the pickups in in my signature guitar, for example, the uh, the sentient Nazgul set. Um, I helped design those and you know helped voice those in my guitar, so they fit really well in that guitar and they sound good for for my sound. But even at that, I there's other things I would change, you know, specific little things that I would maybe change here and there. But it it changes from day to day. I might be like, well. Today I want a warmer tone. Tomorrow I want one that you know sounds like you're you got razor blades in your ears. You know, just depends. But I'm actually working on uh, some some pickup stuff at the moment, which might be a little bit more tailored to my ideal pickup sound. So we'll we'll see where that goes. I don't I can't give too much info on that. But fair enough. There's uh, there's some stuff in the works. Awesome. So how do you feel about answering some questions from the audience? Because we got quite a few. Uh, no, I got to go. <laughs> Peace. No, I'm just kidding. Awesome. I'm kidding. I love you all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no questions. See you later. Nice talking to you. <laughs> no, I'd be happy awesome. to, man. Let's do it. All right. So but some of these questions were actually things that I wanted to talk to you about. So the first question from Jimmy Glass was how long and how tedious was your studio build? Great job with it because it's amazingly beautiful. Okay, so we know that it's tedious because anytime you go to build a studio, it's tedious. Like, for instance, I have a brand new one uh, with Andrew Wade, and it took a year to get constructed, and it's gorgeous now. But So, yeah, I mean, anytime that you're going to build a room, or a studio, it's going to take about three times longer than you think it will and cost about 50% more. So let's just start with the basic construction, like what you did to treat it and uh, whether or not you built special walls or anything like that. Yeah. Um, well, the studio that you visited uh, was, was the house I lived in before. And a lot of the room treatments that I, I had in that, uh, that space have obviously been adapted to, to my new home. In terms of, of building the room, uh, there wasn't anything specific I did to the walls or, you know, anything like that. I mean, I put a new flooring and all that kind of stuff, but that was more cosmetic than anything. The the room treatment stuff that I have, uh, I go through ready acoustics uh, for my bass traps and, and high-frequency diffusers. They've always worked really well for me. I've had them for several years, and... Uh, Joel is all over there at uh, Ready Acoustics has always been really cool about helping me with the placement of them and, you know, analyzing my room and things like that. But really, you know, the the setup isn't isn't that complicated, believe it or not. Uh, it's just some panels on the walls and I have a desk on the far wall with, with my DAW rig in it. And in terms of the gear that I have, it's really tailored just specifically to what I do, which is primarily guitar recording. I'm not set up to do drums. Uh, I, I could be, um, but, you know, I'd have to give up the guest room that people come and sleep in, <laughs> which I don't really want to do. But it's I, I really have a limited amount of uh, availability to do big projects in here. It's more just for doing guitar, bass, vocals, things like that. And really only for myself and the, the friends that I work with. It's it's not really something that I, I do for, uh, I don't do mixes and recordings for other people generally. Um, I have, and I've used it for that, for, for friends and stuff. But it's really uh, tailored for what I do. And all the gear that I have are things that I use to do what I do. So 
in terms of building it, it was it was pretty organic. And, you know, a lot of the gear came from doing demos and working with companies and stuff like that. So the cost of it is, is probably not as much as, as most people might assume, just because a lot of it was trade and barter and, um, you know, doing work for it. And we'll put some pictures up and get also in the show notes for people. But, okay, so I'm assuming, I've seen pictures of the new place and it's gorgeous. But some of the things that I remember about your old place, which I'm sure you've improved on, but you didn't need to improve on, was it's so damn organized, like down to how you use your your monitors, the monitors you look at, not the ones you listen to, like how you would have one monitor for a specific purpose, like programming drums, I remember that. And uh, it, it was all set sure. up to where you just had, for what you do there, you had maximum efficiency with your tools. Like there was nothing, nothing yeah. was in your rig just to be there. Yeah, well, there, there's two reasons for that. The first reason is, you know, when I write, I don't really like to be obstructed and in, in messing with, you know, stuff in the DAW and, and trying to switch windows and do all this, this other kind of stuff. I, I just, I have to kind of have everything right there and not have not be bogged down with the actual production process, even when I'm writing. So that's just mainly for convenience. And I put a lot of thought into that, like, how can I make my workflow more efficient so that I can get my ideas out without having to really think about doing all this other stuff that isn't musical? And that's that helps my process a lot. And I guess the other side of it is I, you know, I respect it. I, you know, I respect what I've earned and I respect what I've worked so hard for. And, you know, maybe I get a little OCD about it even at times where it's like, yeah, you know, I worked hard to, to have this and I, I'm going to respect it. I'm going to take care of it and, and keep it nice and keep it organized. And yeah, I mean, that's, you know, if you're proud of it, you're going to keep it, keep it clean. Yeah, for a lot of you mixers out there, the way that that uh, Keith talked right now about how he doesn't like to be obstructed by the DAW. A lot of that are the same thinking that we have when we say to do your mix prep on one day and you're mixing on the next day because it's more efficient that way that you do all your setup at one point in time and you have you take care of every piece of setup needed at once so that once you actually get to mixing, you're not messing with any editing, any track naming any routing anything you can just get straight to mixing and nothing's in your way because there's nothing like messing with a daw or editing something to knock you out of that creative state you need to be in to make progress that's exactly what happens that's exactly what happens is is you end up going down this path where you're like well what what does this plugin do or what is this going to do and how do I get it to sound like this or how do I do this? And and then all of a sudden you're out of that mode. You know, every guitar player who, who's written a song that they're proud of knows that feeling that when, when you get buried in it, you don't want to think about hitting record. You don't want to think about levels on your mixer. You don't want to think about any of that stuff. You want to get that idea out and you want to be stoked about it. You want to feel like you're in this world that exists somewhere else. And you can't really do that if you're, if you're fiddling with your, your gear all the time. And the prep is a big thing too. I mean, that applies even when, uh, like when we tracked the alluvial record or any of the other things I've done, you know, like if I'm tracking Wes, for example, you know, he's got his little station set up 
where next to him he's got coffee, he's got a tin full of picks, he's got, you know, a towel, he's got masking tape, he's got all this stuff, you know, laid out right there next to him to where he doesn't really have to think about it. it it's like if he needs it, it's right there. It's not going to hinder the creative process. It's not going to hinder his performance in any way. It's just all right there. And and I guess it's just a matter of thinking about that stuff beforehand. It, it makes the process a lot uh, a lot more enjoyable, I think, when when you're not having to like go back and try to find something or mess with gear. I think that flow state is a very delicate thing. It's it is. It's an important it's thing. It's crucial. You know, I find that the best writing or the best productivity happens in a flow state, but in order to be able to create that flow state more often, you'd have to have some pretty like strict habits because if you just wait around for it to happen, you could be waiting forever. And then also, if you don't take it seriously and respect it, kind of like the way you talked about respecting your gear, you might be you might be killing your flow state before you even get maximum results out of it. So it's almost like you have to set up your whole work environment around it so that when it does hit, when you're lucky enough to have it hit, you can make the most out of it. Because that's when the... That's when all the good shit happens, at least for me. Absolutely. Well, and there's something to be said, too, just about general vibe of your your work area. You know, this is this studio is somewhere that I spend most of my time in, you know, at least while I'm working. This this is where I'm at. And, you know, if no one wants to work in a shithole, you know, (laughs) (laughs) keep it nice, you know, vibe it out, make it an inspiring spot to uh, to be creative. You know, that, that's the main thing. I think anyone who's ever been to a really sick studio gets it. You know, they, they're like, oh, this vibe, w- I, I would have such a good time writing music in this environment because it's just vibed out. It's, it's got, you know, it's got the right feel. Nothing is, is, you know, nothing is slowing you down. All it is is just inspiration. So that's, uh, that's how I tried to do this spot. And surprisingly, I've actually had a few people tell me um, how effective that's actually been for them when they've they've come to the studio. My buddy Doug Rappaport, for example, he's an amazing musician. He uh, he plays guitar in the Edgar Winter Band, and he's uh, he's been over here and done a lot of of different projects with me uh, for Seymour Duncan and and some other stuff. Just working on music. He's a like a bluesy rock kind of player, just an amazing amazing musician, and he's been to you know, many different studios. He was a, a session player down in LA for a really long time. And so he's been all over the place and been been to a lot of different, like big commercial studios. And he tells me that tracking here in, in my humble little basement is more enjoyable and, and gives him a better vibe and makes him feel more creative than any of those other studios did. So that's that's a, a really huge compliment. And it's also really cool to, to know that it's effective for other people besides me. So that's that's the main reason I do that. I thought that when I saw your old place, I remember that the vibe was just great. And I remember, well, let me just say that I also subscribe to that. Like, I've always tried to keep my places as vibe-friendly as possible. I remember when you came to record the Conquering Dystopia drums at my old place, you complimented the vibe and said that it was... Uh, 
creative friendly or something like that. And that was, that's something that I always try to keep in mind as well, because it makes a big difference. If you feel like you're in a place that you can be creative and that feels good and it's like vibey, that's great as opposed to feeling like you're at a dentist's office in a strip strip exactly mall. well and you can do that in in so many subtle ways i mean you know a, a lot of guys out there they just have a laptop in their bedroom and and have headphones and stuff and there's still ways you can make that environment feel more like a creative studio and you know it, it it's uh I mean, really, it comes down to just ask anybody: Would they rather track guitars in in a really cool and classy studio, or would they rather do it in like some dude's garage with you know fucking spray paint on the drywall? You know, like, <laughs> it's just like what's going to make you feel more creative? What's going to inspire you? You know, and I guess if you're playing, you know, crust punk or something, then maybe the garage is a better fit. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Actually, that might be kind of sick. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with. I'm gonna start kicking <laughs> holes in the walls and like throw beer cans all over the place. We'll be, we'll yeah, be, be writing some doom albums in no time. Business. I'll, I'll go with the classy studio though. Um, I'm, I'm spoiled. <laughs> Here's one from Jack Hartley, which is: You seem to have an endless supply of amazing riffs. Can you give some insight into your writing process? Do you sit on riffs and let them develop over time, or do you demo them and start composing and arrange? as soon as the inspiration strikes hmm that's a good one yeah i mean when it comes to writing riffs i usually have them in my head before i play them and i'll get out the idea for the most part on the guitar based on you know the way i kind of wrote it in my head and then i'll embellish it or make it better once i actually have the instrument in my hand but it's definitely not an endless supply not by any means you know, it's it's just like anything else. It's 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 a difficult thing to to get in the zone sometimes and and to get a creative sounding riff and and make it cool. You know, but man, I, I, you know, honestly, dude, I don't even know how to answer that. <laughs> I really don't know how to answer that because it's like it sounds to me like it's all of the above, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a an endless supply of riffs. You know that that's. It, they are a mixture of sometimes I get lucky and I'll have like a, a riff that I'm like, oh, I think that's a cool riff. And and there it is. It just exists all of a sudden. But sometimes it's it's a longer process where I kind of have an idea or a direction I want to go in and it'll take me a little while to uh, sort of develop it. And, you know, sometimes there's riffs that I'll write and then a month later I'll continue working on it and change it and make it better or, or whatever, you know? So there really isn't a, a one solid answer for that. It's, it's just kind of like riffs are just what I, what I do, I guess. I, I just like writing riffs and there's many different ways that I do it. It sounds to me like the, the answer is that you're consistent. So like you just write a lot. Well, you know, I only, I only ever write what I want to hear. You know what I mean? Like that's, I guess, the the riffs that I write sound the way they do, and and they they sound like my riffs because they are. And you know, it's it, it's one of those things where I'm just kind of like, this is what I'm feeling, and this this is how I sound, and this is my my kind of music that I want to hear. And so the riffs just kind of happen like that organically. You know, like. If I'm going to ask myself, does this sound like one of my riffs? Does this sound like something I would play? 
And if it does, then I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. And if it doesn't, then maybe that wasn't the intention. You know, sometimes I'll intentionally try to write stuff that doesn't sound anything like what I would normally do. And that's, you know, there's different reasons for doing that. You know, sometimes maybe I have to do a gear demo that's in more of like a, you know, doomy stoner rock style or something. And so I got to kind of shift gears into that mode. And, you know, my native style, I guess, is more of just like a technical death metal-y kind of thing with like, I, I don't know, just modern metal, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I just I just write what, what I hear in my head and what feels right. So here's one from Bass Peters, which is, what's in your bass chain? Uh, not a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, this, this might be kind of interesting. Um, the way that I record bass... And uh, like, we'll, we'll use the alluvial bass sound, for example. The way that I did that was I actually used the same profile that I did for the guitar tones. And I split the DI out, run that into the DAW, so I have a, a DI in there. And then I have the, the wet uh, Kemper track, which in post, you know, I, I cut out all the lows. So I just basically have the grit, the distortion of, of the, uh, the profile in there. Um, so that's how I get like the bass distortion on there is, is through the same profile that I used on the guitars. And for some reason, for me, that's always worked really well. That's clever. Yeah, it, it's really worked well because like there isn't, there isn't this battle all the time between these, these frequencies. And for some reason, the, the interplay between that same tone on the bass as you have on the guitars, but you're cutting out all the lows of it. It just makes the guitars sound bigger too, because you have that same type of saturation and aggression, but on on the bass as well. So I blend that in with the DI track, which uh, I typically use uh, Ampeg SVX, and uh, have more of a cleaner kind of bass sound on that. And then I blend in that distortion with that, uh, you know, that cleaner Ampeg type sound. And then from there, I would basically just melodyne the DI and add uh, the Joey Sturris Sub Destroyer plugin on it. And that's my bass sound. That's super clever. That makes a lot of sense. It works well. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, I, I don't know if it's right or wrong. You know, I, I'm, I'm not a pro by any means, but it, it's always worked really well for me doing it like that. And uh, it's actually, for, for your workflow too, it's, it's really pretty sweet because... I can I can pull up my mix template that I used for alluvial or whatever else, and I can write a riff and record left and right guitars real quick, and then I can literally unplug the guitar, plug in the bass, record it without changing anything. Um, you know, I, I don't have to change anything in on the Kemper or plug into a different rig or whatever, and. All I have to do is just arm my two bass tracks and, and record without changing anything, and there it is. It's, it, it just works. So it doesn't hinder your workflow, and the result is usually pretty cool, for me anyway. That's great. So uh, here's one from Brandon Folsom, which is, why the hell haven't you made an eight-string version of the KM7 Mark II? Uh, well, I don't really play eight-string. That's a good, good reason. Yeah, I, you know... I, I won't rule it out. I won't say that it'll never exist. Schechter has talked about it a few times, asked me if I wanted to do it, but their concern is that, you know, I don't play eight string. So it doesn't really make sense for it to be a signature instrument if I don't use it. So, 
but I, I'm actually, I've been writing some stuff recently that does incorporate eight strings. So I don't know. We'll see. Here's one from Andy James. Do you know Andy James, by the way? I do. Yeah. Love Andy. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, he, he's, a, he's cool and he's sick. So he said, I thought he was bald. Nice to know he can still grow hair. LOL. Is he, <laughs> oh, <laughs> is he and Loomis going to do another Conquering Dystopia album? Well, I knew I wouldn't get through this without somebody mentioning hair. I, I just, that, that's just, yeah. that was bound to happen. And it had to be Andy. <laughs> Good old Andy. Yeah, I mean, the hair thing, I mean, it, it grows. I let it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Jeff and I have been talking about doing another Conquering record, and um, we actually have a bit of material that we've been working on. A uh, little-known fact, but Alex Webster actually lives really close to me, um, just a few minutes away. And he comes over and we work on... Since when? Um, since a little over a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, he, he moved out here to the area, the Portland area. And uh, yeah, we get together and, you know, hang out, go out to dinner all the time and write music when we can. Um, you know, when he's home, he's, he's obviously gone a lot, but um, we've, we've been working on some stuff for Conquering and uh, yeah we will definitely have another record. It, it may be a while, but it's something we're working on. It seems like everyone tends, and everyone is going to the West Coast. I'm going there too eventually. It's just better out there. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what it is about this place, but I, it draws people here and I, I love it. I mean, I don't think I'd want to go anywhere else. I, I grew up in California I was born down in the L.A. area and spent most of my younger years down there and ultimately ended up in the, the Pacific Northwest, and this is where I'm going to be forever, I think. I love it out there, man. It's gorgeous. It's just chill. Yeah. Yeah, it's just chill. You know, it's kind of more my speed. Like, if you're if you're a reclusive, kind of introverted type of dude, <laughs> <laughs> go somewhere where it rains a lot, you know, and you you don't have to force yourself to to be inside cuz you just don't want to go outside cuz it's shitty out all the time so <laughs> exactly well i looked through all the other questions man and we actually covered all of that stuff during the podcast we've been going for a while so oh, okay. i'm going to cool. going to call it because this one this is going to be a long one and i just want to thank you yeah well, feel free. Yeah, I mean, dude, feel free to cut any anything out that sucks, man. I mean, no, really. we're good. It's uh, I it's I just want to thank you for coming on and being so open with your answers. I know that the uh, listening audience is going to love this, and uh, thank you. Oh man, it was my pleasure, dude. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Ibanez Guitars and Basses. Ibanez strives to make high quality, cutting edge musical instruments that any musician can afford and enjoy. Visit Ibanez.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today. 